Okay, Jeff, we're working our way through the top 100. It occurs to me, and I'm wondering if it occurs to you, we're counting down albums, and yet isn't the album a dying art form? You know, it might be. I, I've been thinking about this, and there's a lot of people that would argue against it, but I'm just thinking, what if teenagers now do the show The Pick in the 2040s or something, or the 2050s, I guess? Right. Are they going to look back at albums that were hot when they were, you know, teenagers now? I don't know. I mean... Yeah, they'll look more like at downloads. You know, yeah. that was a cool download. But then I think album will now have this sort of kitschy, classic revival niche, right? Because you can go buy an album for 75 bucks now because it's this funky thing from the past that suddenly has re- had a popularity resurgence. There, there still are kids today that get into bands like Led Zeppelin and Rolling Stones and things like that. And for us, that was still kind of new music. I mean, relatively new. For kids now, it's super old stuff, but they can still get into it. Some of them, not all of them, of course. Well, and then the availability of music through streaming, I think, makes it just that much easier to go explore, to go in and out of a catalog and develop your own playlist without doing the full listen-through of a complete album. Yeah, because, I mean, part of my teenage years was trying to figure out how I could get more and more albums on recorded on a cassette so my cassette... <laughs> collection could be huge but i had to i had to scheme because i couldn't buy everything so i had to scheme okay oh you have that album can i borrow it you know right i I remember i bought my sister's albums for christmas but i couldn't wait so i opened them early and recorded them (laughs) myself and one time i was doing that and my sisters came home and saw like madonna and cindy lopper sitting out by the record player they go oh wow look what jeff got and and my dad got so mad at me for (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well see you just mentioned the word record player too which of course is this this thing this glorious you know exactly. antique from the past but if you think about it when we were getting into a lot of these albums that we're picking on this list once you drop that needle you were you were committed right you weren't you weren't in a position to just skip around or or well it was you know, harder jump. Have, i mean you did it you'd pick up the needle and move it but it's it was definitely uh, not like just grabbing your headphone cable and pressing a button well, certainly not the first time, right? I mean, when you when you would put something on, it was you were at least going to get through all of side one. At least I I don't have any history of like, oh, this sucks. Let me just like flick the little lever and and yep. move the needle over. Plus, you'd have to walk across the room for that. I mean, that's just right. So much work. Take off your headphones. I mean, yeah, it's but not yeah, a good the, thing. the the patience level and the attention um, span of today's listeners is certainly different. Because even I, when I want to listen to a new album on um, Apple Music or Spotify. Sometimes I don't have the patience just to listen to every song all the way through. I go, oh, you know, what's the next song like? You know, and so it's like you just kind of skip ahead. But still, we have artists like Ariana Grande. She just released a new album. You know, uh, Taylor Swift, I think just two days ago, released another surprise album. And so it's like they still are releasing albums, um, right. some of the bigger artists. But I think some of the smaller artists that I really enjoy these days, they are the ones that are often releasing just singles before they get to an album. So... I don't think it's going to die totally, but it's definitely different than when most of these albums we're covering were released. I think you're onto something there with attention span, though. It's yet another victim of our quick pick, instant gratification world we live in now. And before we lose our audience's attention now, let's get to our numbers 70 through 61. Yeah, that's a good idea. From Portland, Oregon, I'm Kevin Toon. And I'm Jeff Payne, and this is The Pick.
You know, Kevin, as we get further down this list, I get more and more excited to record each episode because of the albums that I get to share keep getting better as we get closer to one, obviously. Well, and I think it's probably, they're just ones that you have a deeper connection to, right? So there's just more to say, uh, more experience to share. Yeah, and I was looking at, I was actually looking at my top 20 the other day, and I'm just like, oh, I can't wait to say that. Oh, I can't wait to talk about this. <laughs> of course, we're a few months from that still, because this is <laughs> a slow process, but uh, I love sharing this stuff. It's one of the main reasons I wanted to do a podcast in the first place. And I think our audience is enjoying it because we're getting more calls to the pick line. We have some uh, interesting ones to share today. And plus, don't forget, the website is there with our full list of albums so far, pickcast.com slash 100. And we have a couple new number readers today, Kevin. Mm. I found a few other contributors. So our first one is uh, from the uh, world of education. Five plus 65 equals 70. Man. Touch the monster's eyes to wake it up. I'm not going to touch the monster's eye. Are you going to touch the monster's eye, Kevin? How much searching of the internet did you have to do to find that? It really doesn't take that much. I just said, I like YouTube, the number 70, and all this weird shit comes up. All right. So while I was a sophomore in high school, rocking out to ZZ Top and Quiet Riot, four guys from Athens, Georgia's were recording the debut album for a band that would become an alt-rock powerhouse. R.E.M. released Murmur in April 1983, and I had no clue. It was a time when rock and roll and Michael Jackson ruled the airwaves, and the unique sound, Michael Stipe's indecipherable singing, cryptic lyrics, no guitar solos, and no synthesizers, was relegated to the left of the dial. And despite being a subscriber to Rolling Stone, I don't remember noticing when the magazine picked Murmur as the album of the year, beating out Thriller, U2's War, and Synchronicity. I wouldn't discover them until three years later when they released their fourth album while I was a college radio DJ. But I worked backward from there, and Murmur quickly became my second favorite album from the band after Life's Rich Pageant. Although my favorite R.E.M. songs mostly appear on their later albums, I think Murmur is perhaps their most consistent record. It's less dynamic and less experimental than what would follow. But there really is no weak song here, just consistently great tunes. Kevin, I have a distinct memory. We worked at the college rock station and we only played Radio Free Europe off Murmur, maybe in very light rotation. But one night I visited a friend at the college alternative station, KZUU, and he let me play Sitting Still from this album. It was the most alternative thing I knew at the time. <laughs> it's quite a statement. Yeah. Interesting that you would use that word. I, I do believe that this was the band for quite a few people that really started to pull the curtain back to what was available, as you mentioned, left of the dial. The, the 90s was a whole decade of exposure of alter, alternative rock, but in the late 80s, we got a glimpse of what was coming with R.E.M., 
It's funny you you mentioned too that this is this ranks so high on your list. I'm I'm a fan of this record. I just haven't given it enough listens to grow my appreciation for it. It still ranks kind of middle of the pack for me. Yeah, I, I'm listening to it a few times in the last few weeks, I just realized how the consistency is there. It's like every song works, every song is strong. Where some of their later albums, they kind of drift into some kind of experimental stuff that sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. But even though their best songs, to me, are later on their albums, this is probably the smoothest listen of all their records. So at number 70, R.E.M.'s first album, Murmur. All right, for my number 70 pick, I'm going to take you, take us, to summer of 76. I'm actually in elementary school then, but old enough that all of this music I'm hearing from my six brothers and sisters playing on our stereo at the house is starting to sink in and become a daily part of my consciousness. And I hear this song, and I know exactly where I was when I first heard it. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. In our kitchen, and it was playing on a transistor radio, Jeff, that was cutting edge because it had both AM and FM capabilities. Imagine that. Incredible. This song is Fly Like an Eagle from the Steve Miller Band. It's my pick at number 70. Is their greatest hits compilation that covers a mere four years and three albums from the mid-70s. The albums are The Joker, Fly Like an Eagle, and Book of Dreams. Jeff, the song Fly Like an Eagle for me is just pure classic rock. It's a classic rock classic. I remember as a kid just being entranced by how cool this song sounded. The combination of Miller's guitar playing, his unique voice, and then the mix of spacey and funky elements that you can hear in the background. One small criticism of my own choice here, Jeff, this greatest hits compilation does not give you the full taste of a song like Fly Like an Eagle. It, it has the radio version, which is fine, but it's edited down. Interestingly enough, Greatest Hits 74-78 does provide this combination on a song like Jet Airliner. It gives you the instrumental intro track, Threshold, as a lead-in, and there you get the full effect. Another great moment on this collection, Jeff, is the track Swing Town, which for my money has one of the coolest drum intros how many songs actually have one of those of any rock tune I've ever heard? I'll admit this is a kind of an odd pick in that it really only covers a small period of time, but for me, that was a stretch where no one was sounding cooler than the Hall of Famer himself, Steve Miller. Yeah, another great band that doesn't make my list because I just didn't get into them enough, but it's great that they're on the list because classic songs that you just never forget. I had similar experiences to you, just remembering from my childhood in the, in my house, hearing these songs, and I'm glad you brought up the lack of space intro because uh, <laughs> I was going to I was gonna harangue you for that. Uh, oh no, it's, a, it's an egregious <laughs> error. I, I will, you know, not of my making, but this is the only collection you can really yeah. readily you know pick that someone could find that has this collection of songs you know it's funny you mentioned the time period too it's probably a blessing when you really think about it that this collection stops 
before the 80s hit because things went kind of bad for Steve in the 80s. Look no further than the awful song Abracadabra. Which I actually liked okay back then. But I heard it recently when I was going through his library uh, and and I thought, man, this song sucks. (laughs) I want to reach out and grab (laughs) you. You want to reach out and throttle my neck for saying that. (laughs) Another parent favorite has to do with questions around different types of sex. Maybe your child asks, what is 69? And if my child asked, what is 69? I would say, well, son. Yes. It's Lyle Lovett, Joshua Judges Ruth. That funky piano begins Lyle Lovett's fourth studio album, Joshua Judges Ruth, my pick at number 69. The sun comes up in a coffee cup. This album did not spawn any hits, and I can't remember why I bought it. But its mix of country, western, gospel, and blues definitely hooked me, even in the same year I was also crazy about Rage Against the Machine. And make yourself at home, I've been to Memphis, and muscle shows. And I love a woman, what I don't Lovett has a lot of humor and whimsy in his music, but many of the tracks in this record are mellow and melancholy, including North Dakota, about life and love on the high plains. Boys from North Dakota, they drink whiskey for their fun. And the cowboys down in Texas. But his humor still pops up. My favorite is probably Church, a gospel tune about a day at church. You might think it's kind of a traditional gospel tune, but as you listen, you find out it's about a preacher. So into his sermon, he goes over time and into the dinner hour. So the singer sneaks onto the stage and leads the choir in a new refrain. I stood up and with all my might I sang to the Lord, let praises be. It's time for dinner now, let's go. I've always loved this song, but I really didn't listen to the lyrics until years after I got it, realizing that everyone in church is just hungry and they want the preacher to end his sermon. Kevin, I only have a few albums on my list that could be called country, but this may be the only one that has any gospel at all, even if it's tongue-in-cheek. When I sampled this, I definitely came away going, man, I need to spend some time listening to more of this. I could not get into his music at all in the 90s when he really kind of came across my radar, but listening to it now, so much talent, so much sophistication, lots of diverse elements in his songs, and even his voice really got my attention. Yeah, I, I like I said, I don't remember why I got into this. I don't remember if it was on a radio station that I listened to then or, or anything, but for some reason it came across my radar, and I bought a couple more albums of his after these, which were also good. Reacquainting myself with it recently has been really a joy because I just like every song in this album. From 1992, this is Lyle Lovett's Joshua Judges Ruth, my number 69. All right, I'm going to stay in the mid-70s, and this is the record that signaled the rise to greatness for Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, 
Yes, their album Rumors is more well known, but this, the self-titled Fleetwood Mac album from 75, was really the beginning of their greatness. It's actually their 10th record, if you can believe it, but it's the first with a new edition combination of Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. The band had relocated to LA from London and Buckingham replaced guitarist Bob Welch, who left the band. And Buckingham joined only on the condition that Nicks, his musical and romantic partner at the time, would also become part of the band. This album contains one of my all-time favorite Fleetwood Mac songs, Christine McVie's Say You Love Me, which was the follow-up single to Rhiannon, but got a ton of contemporary radio airplay in the summer of 76. I'm a big Christine McVie fan. While Stevie Nicks is clearly the star of this band, McVie, to me, is an underrated contributor. She's written some amazing songs, and her voice is truly distinct. So The self-titled Fleetwood Mac album sold more than 8 million copies and set the stage for Rumors, which of course was their blockbuster. This self-titled album was also the first one where we see the behind-the-scenes tensions among the band manifesting in great music. It's safe to say that the addition of Buckingham, who ruffled John McVie's feathers in the studio with his assertiveness, was probably the catalyst for that. My pick at number 69 is the self-titled album from 1975 from Fleetwood Mac. Great choice. Definitely higher on my list. I love Rumors, but I also love this album almost the same. Sometimes I, I get confused as to which songs are in which, and it doesn't really matter because you can just listen to both all the way through, and it's just such a great listen. And as we move on to number 68, I have Fleetwood Mac as well, but I have their 1979 effort that came after Rumors rather than before it. This is... Tusk. So after Rumors, they were under heavy pressure from their record company to release a worthy follow-up. And this, the band's 12th album, begins with the lush song over and over, and you might think they're on the right track. All you have to do is speak out. But from Christine McVie's soft vocals, we take a hard left into the first of the album's several Lindsey Buckingham tracks. This song is called The Ledge, and it's when you realize this is not a repeat of rumors. Tusk is basically three different artists revealing three distinct styles. McVie, Buckingham, and Stevie Nicks, whose song Sarah became the album's highest charting single in the US. Much less popular than what came before it, Tusk makes my list because it shows a band not afraid of experimentation and confident enough to deliver a double-length LP that disappointed the industry. Mick Fleetwood considers it his favorite by the band, and he credits Buckingham for not making another Rumors. 
The penultimate track is the title one, Tusk, a percussive and somewhat spooky song. The album drew comparisons to the Beatles' White Album, another double LP that was experimental and revealed unexpected styles. It was followed almost three years later by Mirage, which is more of a return to their hit-making style. It's hard for me to pick a favorite track, but I'd probably have to go with a Buckingham song. Either That's All For Everyone, or this one, Not That Funny. Kevin, I think Fleetwood Mac is actually the first band I could say I was a real fan of. Mm. I believe I got Mirage first, and when I got this cassette, I was a little surprised but intrigued. And even though I loved Back in Black and I loved Pink Floyd, The Wall, this was the first band I sought out their other albums and mm. had probably four or five albums of theirs before I had two of any other. Interesting. So Mirage was your introduction to I, Fleetwood Mac? No. I'd heard all the hits on the radio for years, but it's the first. I believe it's the first cassette I had oh, Okay. before I got the other ones. And I think I got Rumors and Fleetwood Mac and Tusk around the same time. But I remember when I got Tusk and it uh, being very long and just having some strange songs on them, almost all of them Buckingham's. Strange. That's a good word and it's probably a good descriptor for why I have yet to really jump on the bandwagon for Tusk. You are among a small group of uh, folks whose musical taste I respect that it basically blistered me for not getting on board with this record. Yes. Now, I'll tell you, listening to your narrative here on this podcast makes me a little bit more intrigued, especially knowing the context. I think it will help me give this album another chance, knowing the pressure that was on them, specifically on Lindsay, to have to come up with something as a follow-up to the gigantic success of Rumors. All right, from my number 68, my third straight pick from the 1970s is one of pure funky soul from the great Stevie Wonder's classic period. The album is Talking Book, highlighted by the absolute masterpiece, Superstition. say about superstition it just doesn't get any better the percussion the horn section and best of all that keyboard and synthesizer hook at the center of this track which i always thought was an electric guitar talking book is actually stevie wonder's 15th studio album superstition was just his second number one single that was quickly followed up by another number one hit though, the Grammy winning You Are the Sunshine of My Life, which is the album's second single. You are the sunshine of my life. That's why I'll always be around. Along with the follow-up Inner Visions, and later on in the 70s, Songs in the Key of Life, Talking Book is part of a body of work that is simply the best of the best for an amazing artist. 
Rolling Stone has rated Talking Book as high as number 59 on its list of all-time great albums. It was also number two on Billboard's list of top albums in 1972. Jeff, Stevie Wonder's career is a pretty interesting follow from his Motown days to this golden period in the 70s to some sporadic, I think, highlights uh, in the 80s and beyond. But I had to pick one of these three albums that I mentioned to include on this list. And Talking Book was the choice because it was the first signal of something great that was coming. It not only has the great hits, but it has secondary tracks like Maybe Your Baby, which just knock it out of the park. This is definitely an area you are more adept at than I am. Early 70s soul and R&B. I love Stevie Wonder, but I've never listened to one of his albums until you picked this. And out of all the albums you've picked so far in the top 100, this is my favorite of ones that I was not familiar with. It's excellent. I've added it to my playlist, and I'm uh, grateful for you to introduce me to some of these uh, groups and bands that I, I definitely know the hits, but I've just never delved into the albums. Maybe a baby done made some other Yeah, it's it's fun to it's fun to look back and see when artists just reach that crescendo or they're they're just at their absolute peak of their abilities and this great work after great work just comes out. And I would encourage you and, and our listeners to really immerse themselves in this segment of Stevie Wonder's career. The pick line. Hi, this is Miss Freddie from Pittsburgh. Uh, my website is MissFreddy.com. That's M-I-S-S-F-R-E-D-D-Y-E.com. My favorite all-time album, my first favorite is Aretha Franklin, Lady of Soul. I just absolutely love her uh, for her singing, her powerhouse. And then the next album by her I like is I Never Loved the Man the Way I Loved You. I remember my mom buying that album when I was a kid, and I would listen to it um, morning, noon, and night when I was home, especially in the summertime. And then the next album would be by Coco Taylor, uh, Force of Nature. I just think she's another powerhouse. I love blues. I'm a blues singer and gospel by nature. So those are my albums. Those are the ones that I really, really love. Uh, Thank you so much. So I'm not playing one of her picks. I'm actually playing a track from Miss Freddie herself. This is called Wait in the Water, her latest single. Dressed in red, God's gonna trouble the water. Kevin, we're starting to get some pick line calls from uh, musicians. Well, and we're, we're continuing the bi-coastal theme. <laughs> Atlanta, Atlanta last, or no, D.C. last time. Now we've moved up to Pittsburgh. I like it. Yes. Excellent music. And I, I like your picks, too. It's, uh, it's great to have diversity in uh, not only our picks, but the picks from our callers. So we'll do a link to her website, which includes this song, but it's also available on iTunes and Spotify. Miss Freddie from Pittsburgh. Bring your mind back to the repetitive task of counting down. If your mind wanders, gently coax it back to a focus 
unadulterated focus upon counting down sixty seven. Okay, we'll stay focused on counting down. My number 67 is the seventh studio album by the Black Keys from 2011. This is El Camino. So it's their seventh album. They had definitely been around for a while, but I first took note of this band with their album Brothers from a couple of years earlier, which was their commercial breakthrough. El Camino is much more up-tempo and rocking than Brothers. Both albums are really good, but for me, this one is just infectious. Eleven songs that just don't let down in catchiness and foot-stomping fun. The Black Keys are just two guys from Akron, Ohio, lead vocalist and guitarist Dan Auerbach and drummer Patrick Carney, and they teamed up with producer and writer Danger Mouse for this album. They wanna get my Kevin, I really appreciate these guys. Just a duo that cranks out great rock at a time that the genre tends to get a little lost in the shuffle. Have you had any moments as we've been doing this where I pick something and you go, hmm, I probably should have had that on my list. No. <laughs> well, this definitely hits that mark for me. And I, by the way, I think you're lying. You're just not willing to admit <laughs> that. But I rem- I saw this on your list when you shared with me what we were going to be talking about. I thought, mm, that probably is one that I should have uh, included. It probably would have landed in my first 20 somewhere. But one song you haven't mentioned, which is maybe my favorite Black Keys song, is Little Black Submarines. Which yeah, is you know, that song is often track. cited as uh, people's like most recognizable track from this album. And I definitely recognize it, but I, it's definitely not my favorite. I, yeah, yeah, I don't know that it's most recognizable. I just... I fell in love with it when I heard it. I could, I had played it over and over, and I remember them. Uh, you and I saw them in concert not long ago, and yep. it was definitely a great moment in that live set. It's actually the only song that has any slow part in it too on this whole. Right. Album. Yeah. Right. All right. Continuing for me at number sixty-seven, we go to a new decade now, and I think the the first pick of mine that's already been selected on Jeff's list. Like a Virgin was Madonna's second studio album and the one that made her a superstar. Beyond the big radio hits like Material Girl, Dress You Up, and the title track, I'll continue to listen to this record because of its depth. A song like Angel really stands out for me. It gets overshadowed by the bigger hits on this record. This album has some deeper cuts that are real gems, like Shooby Doo on the second side and a remake of a minor R&B hit from the late 70s by the band Rose Royce. You may know Rose Royce as the band that gave us Car Wash. Madonna did a remake of their hit, of their minor hit, Love Don't Live Here Anymore. It closes out the first side of Like a Virgin, really one of the more underrated songs on this record.
This album was the first of Madonna's many commercial blockbusters and the first, you may not know, by a female artist to sell over 5 million copies. Madonna has called this album a, quote, stronger effort than her debut record, and I think a big reason for that is her choice of the producer, the great Nile Rodgers, who had recently produced David Bowie's Let's Dance album and, of course, was known for his creation of the great funk sound from the late 70s with his band Chic. My pick at number 67 is Like a Virgin by Madonna. In another homage to the heyday of trip-hop, I pick as my number 66, Big Calm, the second album by British band Morchiba. Flocking to the sea Crowds of people wait for me This is the opening track called The Sea, and it's one of the reasons this album resonated with me so much. I was living at the beach from 95 to 98, and the lyrics of this song pretty much captured my mood whenever I was at home. However, whenever I heard it, I thought about how much luckier I was than the singer who had to return to the city, and I lived there. This to me is just a great record to chill by. The singer Sky Edwards' voice is so soothing, and she's released some good solo work too. So Kevin, the album is called Big Calm, the first track is The Sea. The singer's name is Sky. The perfect mix for beach living in the 90s. I really enjoyed sampling this one too and uh, commend you for finding yet another pick that I think exemplifies a big reason why we make these choices is because we connect with it at a certain time in our lives and when we listen to it, it takes us back to that place and what we might have been experiencing and I can totally relate to uh, that concept because a handful of my picks are this way too. But yeah, chill is a great way to describe this one. Definitely going to add it to my library. That's why I think it's great that we're doing our favorites rather than trying to strive to do the best albums of all time because it's just about what we loved, whether or not it's a critical hit, whether or not albums will appear on Rolling Stone's Top 500. doesn't matter. It's, it's records that we appreciate and love. Yeah, I could really see myself flailing through an attempt to try to praise Blonde on Blonde. As embarrassing as that is to say, it's, it's definitely true. And I am not, I am not proud to say that. All right, at number 66 for me, I'm calling this the last truly great album from a great band. What's the frequency Nineteen Monster was a dramatic shift in sound for R.E.M. after their crossover and commercial success worldwide on 1991's Out of Time and the follow-up Automatic for the People. That sound change is emphatically demonstrated in this opening heavy guitar hook on the single What's the Frequency, Kenneth? And it's echoed with more distortion and effects throughout the simpler arrangements on this album. 
R.E.M. supported this record with its first extensive tour since 1989, and in making Monster, the band was looking to produce an album that rocked, according to drummer Bill Berry. I saw this tour. In fact, it was the only time I had the good fortune of getting a front row seat for a major concert. I listened to this record repeatedly from start to finish in the summer of 95. They accomplished their mission. The songs on this record translate seamlessly to live arena performance, not just the rockers, but songs like this one, I Don't Sleep, I Dream. According to one critic, Monster sounded like an album, quote, R.E.M. had to make to clean out their system, unquote. I think it marks the final piece of their greatness period. Barry had to leave the band for health reasons soon after their next record, and they produced several more albums that were modestly successful in the following decade. One of a handful of R.E.M. albums I'll pick on this list, this is Monster. I don't know. I'm glad you put it that way, their last great album. It's also the last album I even know, the last album I like by them. Um, I think the follow-up was New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which I did buy and didn't care for, and that's the last time I bought an R.E.M. album. But it doesn't matter because this was the end of an incredible run of work from one of only two bands on my list that have four appearances. It's interesting you say that um, it, it really was kind of a jumping off point for you because it was the same for me. I don't, I didn't buy the next record. I went back later and tried to listen to the stuff they put out after this and it just didn't measure up. There's just that, there's that segment of their work from 83 to 95 that you pretty much can't go wrong with any of those. Okay, Kevin, as I mentioned, we have some new number readers, and we get this one from some gamer kid in the UK. The number 65, it's such a bloody useless number. Like, who thought they should invent the number 65? Like, yeah, okay, 64 is cool because it's like a, the amount of blocks you can have in a stack in Minecraft, and it's like, you know, four to the power of three. No, yeah, four to the power of three or eight to the power of two. But... And 66 is pretty cool as well, because it's a multiple of 11. You know, everyone likes two numbers that are the same next to each other. It's pretty cool. You reverse 66, and it's still 66. Uh, so um, I came to this realization of 65 being an utterly useless number. Uh, I'm in my shed right now. Of course you are. I, I just don't get it. I, Why? Why 65? When was the last time that you used 65? Like, it just sucks on so many levels. I'm going to have to end this video here before you... Before I, before I lose my mind, really. Oh, you you haven't lost it yet? <laughs> I'm glad that someone has an opinion about a number like that. It's, uh, it's can we go helpful. back to why he's sitting in his shed? Maybe that can illuminate. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. But I do want to point out that my number 65 does not suck. London, quieten down, I need to make a sound. New York, quieten down. This is a British artist of Sri Lankan descent. Her full name is Mathangi Maya Arulaparazam, but she goes by MIA, and this is her debut album, Arular. The first time I heard this, I wasn't so sure. 
then I saw her perform in the bright sunshine of the fifth stage at Coachella and drawing a bigger crowd than was expected and tearing down the tent, I was sold. Her father was a Tamil activist. The album's titer, Arular, was a political code name that he used. She contends that her father's revolutionary ideas are the album's thematic base. Most Americans may remember her at the Super Bowl when she flipped off the camera while performing with Madonna and Nicki Minaj on a song actually that the three of them wrote together. She skipped the word shit in the song as she was supposed to do, but the flipping off gained her a fair amount of scorn and my appreciation, of course. <laughs> I saw her play again on my birthday in 2007, and it was one of my favorite live shows ever in the small Wiltern Theater in Los Angeles. Super energetic, massively fun, and Kevin, I have a special song for you. This one would have fit well into Crack That Track TV theme edition. Oh yeah, Sanford and Son, dude. This is awesome. <laughs> this song actually wasn't on the original American release because they didn't have uh, the clearance yet. It was only on the British version, so I had not heard it when I saw her play in Coachella. And I'm watching the show, and all of a sudden, Sanford and Son starts blasting out of the speakers, and Red Fox saying, You big dummy. And it's just like, This is awesome. <laughs> Suppose there's some hardball negotiating with uh, Red's representatives. Something like that, to, yeah. yeah. So, Jimmy Iovine, the chairman of MIA's American distribution label, Interscope, compares her to Lou Reed and punk rock singer Patti Smith, and recalled, She's gonna do what she's gonna do. I can't tell her shit. You're really left of center artists, you really wonder about them. Can the world catch up? Can the culture meet them in the middle? That's what the adventure is. It doesn't always happen, but it should and it could. And her music is called all kinds of things, from rap to grime to hip hop and reggae to dancehall to raga to punk to funk karaoke to electro clash. Whatever it is, I love it. Jeff, we've had a couple, probably had a handful of examples that this one fits into from your list that are vastly different from mine. I, I, I want to say it's it's the attraction of sort of the spontaneity and the impulsiveness of the artist that seems to hook you more than, than me. I mean, I love the I love the use of Sanford and Son. I think that's hilarious. And I do appreciate artists who are very unabashed, I guess, in, the, in their expression and their choice of, of language or statements that they want to make. Is that kind of what was the lure for you here? Well, not at first. At first, it was the experimentation and the difference of the music, not something I was normally used to. And like I said, when I first heard the album, oh, this is interesting. I don't know if I can listen to it a lot. And then seeing her play live and just seeing the energy that, that she had, but also the mm. crowd had, really fired me up. And I went back and gave the album some more listening, and it became one of my favorites of the year for sure. And I was very excited for her follow-up, and her follow-up uh, blew the house up, in my opinion. I think I'm where you were when you said, hmm, this is interesting, I may dot, dot, dot. But then you really had it driven home for you by the live performance. That's true with a lot of artists. You only connect so much or only get that that connection so much with listening to their studio work. It goes to a different level when you've experienced their live shows. At number 65. Yeah, yeah. 
Arular by MIA. All right, for my number 65, this is the debut album from English indie pop trio The XX. The album is titled XX and was released in 2009. Jeff, this is probably the only time I'm going to pick a and recommend a record because of an instrumental track. It's the album's opening track and has the nondescript title of Intro. It is an odd choice, but this album intrigued me right from the start when I heard it because of this track. To say the least, it's rare that an opening instrumental track will hook you and make you want to further explore an album. The songs on this record feature minimalist arrangements and they're built around really cool beats created on a laptop by the band's Jamie Smith, accompanied by cool bass lines from Oliver Sim and sparse guitar playing from lead vocalist Romy Madley Croft. She uh, uses reverb a lot on her guitar parts, which I think gives them just that much more distinction to their sound. Most of the songs are low-key duets from Croft and Sim, both of whom wrote emotional lyrics about love, intimacy, loss, and desire. The album got widespread acclaim from the critics, many of whom named it one of the year's best records in 2009. It sold steadily over its first few years of release and was a sleeper hit both here in the U.S. and over in Britain. I actually did not first listen to it when it came out. It was burned for me on CD by a buddy about three or four years after. I don't have to leave. Although the media had pretty much ignored the band at first and none of its singles became hits, the XX benefited commercially from the licensing of its songs for television programs, and the band won a Mercury Prize for this album in 2010. Jeff, I think it's fair to say, at least from my collection, nothing else really sounds like this, and that's probably the big reason why it made my list. I just, when I first heard it, I, I thought, this is different than pretty much anything I've spent time listening to over the years and I got hooked really early on it, and I know that moving forward, I will continue to listen to this record a lot. Yeah, well put. This is a unique sound. I liked it a lot, too. I bought this when it came out. They haven't been very busy. They released another one in 2012 and then another one in 2017, and now Romy has released a solo effort, so I hope they continue because they do have a unique sound, and that is always something that I think impresses, especially when it's good, of course. Coexist, I really liked. I listened to the follow-up. I haven't really gotten into their third record much. I do wonder if they will have sustainability over time because I wonder where they'll go with their sound. I am yours now. So that's my pick at number 65. It's the debut album from the XX called XX. Anna. Anna, my niece, once again. And now at number 64, may I present perhaps the coolest record to play at a cocktail party ever made. Yeah. 
This is Verve Remix 2 from 2003. And by Verve, I do not mean The Verve, the short-lived band that released Bittersweet Symphony. No, this is actually Verve Records. They released a series of albums centered on the concept of classic Verve tracks remixed by contemporary electronic music producers and DJs. This is the second disc. They've done five full lengths, including a Christmas version, as well as some EPs and extended mixes. But Verve Remix 2 is the one I happen to buy and still love to this day. This is Sinnerman, a Nina Simone classic, remixed by Felix the Housecat. In addition to Nina Simone, this one contains classic blues and jazz artists such as Ella Fitzgerald, Hugh Masekela, Dizzy Gillespie, Astrid Gilberto, remixed by contemporaries such as Coop and Bushwacka, and on my favorite track, Whatever Lola Wants, Sarah Vaughn remixed by The Gotan Project. Kevin, this is a direct result of listening to uh, KCRW in Los Angeles. This is right up their alley of eclectic music, and if you want your party to be swanky, you only need a couple of these records, or maybe the whole box set they released would be the best. Jeff, have you actually held a swanky party? Yeah, actually I have. Okay, good. <laughs> not, not like uh, the ones you see in the, co- the album covers, but, you know, where I serve martinis and I have, uh, you know, hipsters back when I was maybe a hipster, you know, in my 30s. Yeah, I wish you told me that before I sampled these tracks, because when I first listened to the songs you gave me to listen to, I thought, this is Night at the Roxbury, but then it gets way better. It's, yeah. I, like, I like the diversity of this. You're right. It does create the cocktail party atmosphere. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I got to say, all the parts of this uh, collection are great. Four remixed albums, plus Christmas, plus a few EPs, plus a First Ladies, plus a Los Angeles Noir version. I mean, they just really went all out, and it's just great stuff. Whatever Lola wants, Lola and And they even released the unmixed versions where they put the original uh, classic Verve songs in the same order. So seek it out online. It's called Verve Remix 2. My pick at number 64. All right, at 64 for me, the year was 2008, and most of the new music I was discovering was from word of mouth. It was my text guy, actually, who burned this CD for me and said, you will love this. It's the fourth studio album from Kings of Leon, Only by the Night, featuring the band's first number one single, Sex on Fire. This new wave sounding song won a Grammy for the Kings and was a gateway to their breakthrough in America. On their previous album, they'd made a shift from early garage rock to a more alternative rock feel. Only by the Night presents that sound with polish and precision. Even injecting pop elements while finding edginess and grit, which you hear in a song like the Zeppelin-influenced Crawl. Only by the Night significantly expanded Kings of Leon's audience 
and the accolades soon followed. In 2008, the album's fourth track, Use Somebody, was awarded Record of the Year, Best Rock Song, and the Best Rock Performance by a duo or group. In his review, Rolling Stone's Christian Horde called Only by the Night, quote, long on astral arena-ready largeness with blippy keyboards, droney guitars, and whoa-oh-oh backing vocals. Couldn't have said it better myself. When the Kings find a gussied up groove with teeth, they sound like rock heroes experiencing the joy of well-manicured sound. I like that quote, Jeff, because what I heard when I listened to this CD for the first time was the transition from rough around the edges guitar rock to something polished with you know maybe some of the formulaic elements you need to produce radio hits hearing this one jeff i explored several other albums in their catalog which i like very much and haven't haven't listened to their latest work but i really i just really like the blend of sort of like this bedrock of a southern rock band that finds these other elements to add to their sound to go to a higher place I think you've done a good job describing this band and this album, uh, and so did that critic. I, it also reminds me why I'm not a critic. I can't write like that. But <laughs> I do enjoy this band. I've just never gotten into them. It's kind of like one of those bands, oh, yeah, i got to listen to them more, and you just never get around to it. So I'm glad you're getting a record of theirs on there. Now, Sex on Fire, you said, was that a number one single, you said? Not Well, okay, you got to remember, there are multiple charts. Right, okay, so, so it was I was going to ask which chart. <laughs> You know, I can't give you the exact name. It's something like the album tracks chart or something. Oh, but okay. anymore, yeah. there's so many charts that if you hit number one on one of them, you're in that rare air now that you've got a number one song. Yeah, yeah. Yes, but good choice. So for number 64, for me, only by the night, Kings of Leon. At number 63, one of the heroes of 90s alternative music, Elliot Smith, and his fourth album, XO, from 1998. Mainstream audiences probably know Smith best from his hit song, Miss Misery, which was nominated for an Oscar for its appearance in the movie Goodwill Hunting. And he famously performed it at the ceremony wearing an all-white suit, looking nervous as hell. The mainstream success of that song was not matched by his other work, but he nonetheless achieved a cult-like status among indie music fans. I had the pleasure of seeing him live a few times at Club Largo in L.A., one of his collaborators and producers, John Bryan, held Friday night residency there for years. Always an entertaining show, and Smith would often show up to play along, usually unannounced. As Wikipedia puts it, Smith had a distinctive vocal style, characterized by his whispery spiderweb fin delivery, and he often used multi-tracking to create vocal layers, textures, and harmonies, end quote. 
His compositions are always beautiful, whether singing about wistful love or depression and despair. Sadly, he could not win the battle with his own demons and was often depressed or despondent and a drug addict. He died in 2003 of two stab wounds to the chest, although whether it was a suicide or homicide was never conclusive. Kevin Smith's music was pretty ubiquitous in L.A. in the late 90s, and the entertainment industry was pretty shocked by his death, and his posthumous album, From a Basement on the Hill, became his highest-charting effort. And he recorded his early work and rose to success while living here in Portland. Yeah, that's where I intersected with him. Uh, he was very well-known here, and, uh, you know, I have to say, it, you, you mentioned this about uh, Kings of Leon. I, I, to an even higher degree, I have this level of shame of not spending the appropriate amount of time listening to Elliot Smith's music because really there's no other sound like him and he's a genius totally agreed uh, it was so great to see him play he was, he and John Bryan were so fun and creative in their shows it was not just straight music they were talking between they would joke with each other and it was refreshing to see him in that venue because he always seemed happy and so much of his music is not happy and obviously his life was not happy in the end so and his music is just so beautiful that it just is a, sh a pretty sharp contrast with the, the man that he was. You know, I can't help but think, because I know his backstory, that when I listen to this voice and this sound, it's, it's a tortured but sweet soul. He has such a sweet perspective and such a gift to offer, and yet he was so tortured. And it, it will happen at one point. I will find the time to listen to more of his music. It's funny, There's a, for fans like me who haven't embraced his catalog, there's actually a collection you can buy called Elliot Smith, An Introduction. It's like a 101 level way to enter into his catalog. Yeah, he has a lot of great albums. Either Or is also considered one of his best. And uh, like I said, From the Basement on the Hill was released after he died, and it contained a lot of stuff he had never released. So my pick at number 63, Elliot Smith's XO from 1998. In 1991, he was no longer John Cougar. This was simply John Mellencamp returning to his guitar-driven sound on Whenever We Want It. Don't look at me, don't touch me. So after his previous two albums, Lonesome Jubilee and Big Daddy featured non-traditional rock instruments like the accordion and the violin, Mellencamp said that on Whatever We Wanted, he wanted to put those instruments back in their cases and return to a harder-edged sound. He further elaborated, saying, it's very rock and roll. I just wanted to get back to basics. Mellencamp also called the album an attempt to write American Fool, the album that had Hurt So Good on it and Jack and Diane, to write that album with better lyrics. Despite calling Whenever We Wanted one of his best records he ever made back in 1991, Mellencamp's opinion of this album has actually since diminished. In 2005, he said, there were some records that I really wasn't there for. I mean, when I did Whenever We Wanted, 
it really isn't a very good record. I mean, I was there, but I was painting. I'd be hours late for the sessions because I was in the middle of painting. That's just not good to do those kinds of things. Well, let me tell you something, John. I don't hear it at all on this record. Uh, this, to me, is is classic Mellencamp, but I think part of what really hooked me on this, Jeff, is is the, the fact that he, it, it sort, in, in some ways, it's kind of a comeback because he went to those non-traditional sounds on those other two records and then went back to what he had been so successful with and I thought, nailed it. So far on the pick 100, this has probably been the most surprising pick from you that I uh, had no idea this album existed. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I've never been a big fan of his, but I've, I liked him very much. And uh, when I saw this title, I go, I don't know that album. And oh, look, it, look, it came out in the 90s. And I listened to it and I realized, okay, this is definitely a return to just guitar rock, which he did stray away from a bit. I really do like Lonesome Jubilee. That's my favorite album by him. And I'm, I'm going to ask you now, is that going to show up or not? So let me let me be let me be clear for the record. Love Lonesome Jubilee. Great record. It's probably like my 101 or my 102. It just barely didn't make it and you know, this is one of the this is one of the takeaways from doing this making this effort here, doing this process with you is as you get further along you're like, you know, maybe that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah. And that that record probably should have been in my top 100. Well, it's funny you said that because you just talked about uh, Mellencamp thinking this record, not a mistake, but uh, yeah. he like regretted it later. And it's kind of like, it, it, I, I was imagining you the way you might feel when you read that. It's like, shit, I really like that record. Yeah, well, <laughs> at a younger age, that, that might have caused me to throw it in the trash. But. <laughs> All right, so that's my number 63 pick, Whenever We Wanted, by John Mellencamp. All right, Kevin, once again, it's time for The Pick Line. You know, that guy does not make enough money. Well, hello, it's Richard from Southwest Portland, and my five pick are uh, from 1985, Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms. Uh, just a case in point, Thriller spent 37 weeks at number one, and Brothers in Arms spent 34 weeks at number one. So it should be high on your list. Second would be uh, Rod Stewart, his 1976 album, A Night on the Town, which featured Tonight's the Night, was one of my favorites. Uh, my next pick is John Fogarty, his 1997 album, Blue Moon Swamp, I think is his best. My next pick is Meatloaf, his Bat Out of Hell album, uh, number three album all time behind ACDC's Back in Black and Michael Jackson's Thriller. But I think his 2010 Hang Cool Teddy Bear is my favorite album of his. And last on my list is the phenomenal Warren Zevon, his 2003 album The Wind, which was his last album he made before he died of cancer, as his best album. Thank you. Guess who this is, Kevin? Well, I'm going to... It is a guess, but based on that call, I'm going to say Meatloaf. Exactly. It's the opening track on Hang Cool Teddy Bear called Peace on Earth. What an eclectic mix. Dire Straits, John Fogarty, and then we really veer over here to get Rod Stewart and then come way back over here for Meatloaf and Warren Zevon. 
I know. I'm kind of impressed. Also, I didn't realize that Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell was the third highest selling album of all time. That's kind of incredible. I love also how fans have these badges of honor that they have to share with you uh, like that or like the, the comment he made about Dire Straits. It's just, I know. He's like shaming us for not having brothers in arms on our list. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished, caller. Mission accomplished. But I love what the blurb on iTunes says about this uh, Meatloaf album. It says, it's an album of epic absurdity that makes for the perfect date by the dashboard light. And I'll just add, I'm a Rod Stewart fan, too. I've seen him live. He's, a, he's an amazing performer, so no shame in that pick. S-I-X-T-Y-T. W O 62. Number 62 for me, 10,000 Maniacs. And the album is In My Tribe. It's their second major label album. But for me, it's undoubtedly the one that, quote, started the buzz. It was the late 80s. REM had broken through. And we were headed towards a decade in which the alternative sound was allowed into the mainstream. So earlier in my countdown, I had the Cowboy Junkies uh, Trinity Sessions, and the 10,000 Maniacs similarly, at that time, the late 80s, were this cool, well-kept secret. Once you gave an album like In My Tribe a listen, and you heard Natalie Merchant's amazing voice and the backing music of the band, you were hooked. That young boy without a name, anywhere I'd know his face, in city, the kid's my favorite. In My Tribe is a set of songs that gives us accessible, hummable tunes like Jack Kerouac and Like the Weather, but also showcases the art of producing a catchy tune that deals with a serious subject matter, like in What's the Matter Here, which is about child abuse. I'm tired of the excuses everybody uses if they I stay out of there. But who So that's my number 62 pick, In My Tribe by 10,000 Maniacs. Uh, Jeff, 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 are you there? I'm, this is not a solo act. Where are you, Jeff? Sorry. All right. Sorry. I uh, had to see a guy about a thing. Where right. Because <laughs> that, that happens a lot. When yeah. Is. Where are we at? Uh, I just did my number 62 pick. It was... Okay. Uh, no, okay, no, you no can good. do yours. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. All right. Uh, for my number 62, it's 10,000 Maniacs in my tribe. Uh, Jeff? Jeff? Yeah. I, I, that was my number 62. That's mine too. Wow, serendipity has happened. Wait, you, did you already play this song? Yeah, I played a couple tunes, Jeff. Uh, um, did you play What's the Matter Here? We, we did hear that one too yeah I was uh, I was kind of thinking you know how this... about uh, painted desert did you play that one uh, no let's try that let's let's hear it. okay this is good all right nice so uh, what'd you say about it <laughs> I don't well, want to repeat you Jeff I, I these I guys kind of remind me of cowboy junkies <laughs> it's funny you and I are just so in sync right now we're just we're on the same wave right now. The painted desert and wait till summer 
I didn't really discover these guys until the 90s, even though this album came out in 87. I, I, I'd heard of them. I'd heard of them, and I thought they were some kind of because their name is kind of kind of wild sounding. I thought they maybe were a punk band or a little right. too a little too rough for me, and I didn't realize they were actually you know female led, really cool pop band. It's sort of like they were the second band through the wall. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure others would argue this, but to, in my experience, REM was the first one that, that, that got us, that started bringing the alt sound yeah. into the mainstream, and these guys soon followed. And sure enough, Michael Stipe shows up on this record. Right, right. There is a connection there. But I, yeah, I really got into uh, 1992's Our Time in Eden. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, the song These Days by 10,000 Maniacs is definitely my favorite song by them. But as an album, this one just has a lot more variety and a lot stronger um, when you get deep into the to the record. Again, this was not planned. We actually both were surprised to see that we had the same choice for number 62. But 10,000 Maniacs in My Tribe from 1987. All right, Jeff, this is my second pick from this band, and there will be a few more. War was the album that affirmed U2 was a band with something to say. New Year's Day was the lead single, and appropriately released to the world on January 1, 1983. War also marks U2's rise to an elite level, maybe even the top of the heap, as a live band. To support this record, they played 110 gigs in Europe, the US, and Japan, with Bono stirring the audience to a frenzy on the crowd-pleasing Sunday Bloody Sunday. The War Tour, as it was called, included the US Festival during Memorial Day weekend, 1983 in San Bernardino, California, in front of 150,000 fans. This was soon followed by their famous performance at Red Rocks in Colorado, which was captured on the live album Under a Blood Red Sky. This album and this band, like so many of that time, were boosted to epic heights by the backing of MTV. I can remember this live performance of Sunday Blunday Sunday getting enormous airplay on MTV in the summer of 1983. In the words of one critic, with their third album, War, you two have found their perspective and with it have generated their most fulfilling work yet. War makes for impressive listening, but most importantly, it deals with a difficult subject along the way. The subject is the sectarian strife in Northern Ireland, or what the Irish call the Troubles. You two are not the first group to play soldiers with this topic, but no one has caught the paradox between stance and action so accurately. Take my So Jeff, you know I'm a big fan, and this was the first U2 record I bought, uh, and it was actually a, a year or so after it came out. New Year's Day registered 
for me a little bit. I was, of course, like you, watching MTV nonstop back in the, back in the day. But it was really the impact of Sunday Bloody Sunday and just watching in awe how this band captured an audience live that really started me getting way into their catalog. Well, the Vegas odd makers are quickly tabulating the new odds on which albums will be higher on your list for you two. <laughs> War has been knocked down. <laughs> what will be next? You, you would have said beforehand that uh, this was a little low for a pick of war for me. I, no, I actually have no idea. But I, it is one of the things that's kind of fun about when we release our list to each other a couple weeks before we record, which U2 album is going to be on there and when the police will first show up. <laughs> which hasn't happened yet. One, la- one other little plug for this record. You know, it's, it's rare that I might suggest someone listen to something for the closing track, but very simple song at the end of this called 40 which became this signature ending for you two in their live shows. The performance that you hear on Under a Blood Red Sky obviously captures the live feel, but, but on the studio record, it feels a little bit like a throw-in, but it works really, really well. New Year's Day really brings me back to high school. I love that song in high school. It's still one of my favorite songs by the band, even though their later albums are on my list, and this one is not. How many times have you seen them live? 17. 17? You've ca- I-, I thought it was going to be more like 30. <laughs> I have friends that have done that, but not quite me. <laughs> you know the day destroys the night. What can you say about Jim Morrison and the Doors? One of the most significant bands in rock history, a unique sound that can't be duplicated, incredible songwriting, amazing vocals, keyboard jams like no other. This band has 21 different compilation albums, including three with the title The Best of the Doors. <laughs> this is perhaps the most seminal. Released in 1985, this is The Best of the Doors. It includes 18 songs, and I think they're the best collection that have been put together yet. It has most of their hits and two epic long tracks for When the Music's Over and The End. This is the end, beautiful prayer. As I said, what more can you say about them? So I won't try. This I'll use my end. segment here to talk about the concept of releasing compilation albums because they have 21 <laughs> of them. That's just crazy. And on streaming, you can't find this particular lineup. You can only find the very best of the doors from 2007. So, Kevin, let me ask you a question. If you're going to be grammatically correct, which one would have more songs? The one called The Best of the Doors or the one called The Very Best of the Doors? <laughs> actually, uh, there, was, there was one. I actually used to have one of these called Legacy. The Very Best or The Best. You know, they just added a word at the beginning and then used The Best of. Well, what they did, though, they released The Best of the Doors and then they changed it to The Very Best of the Doors and they add more songs. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> if it's The Best and The Very Best, The Very Best should have fewer songs. 
Well, it must be. It's just a blatant capitalistic lab, uh, right? Yeah. It is. It is. But it, they basically scrambled up the order, and they added 16 more songs to make the very best. I see. And I, I don't think it's a good listen at all. If you, uh, and, and so what I have done for our listeners and the world mm-hmm. is I have made this lineup again and put it as a public playlist on both Spotify oh, good for you. and Apple Music. So we will link to that on our website on the Pick 100 page. So you can listen to this order, uh, this collection of 18 songs, because I do feel it's the best. Well, th- let me ask you a question. Does it include Peace Frog? No. Well, see, I, then you, you see, got I, some work. You've got some like, work to do. I do You've like Peace Frog, to... but uh, yeah. not on here. I, I, but right. I don't think it's on the very best either. No, I, it, it, Peace Frog is one that you you only find in a, the, the 16th compilation that they put out for yes. some absurd reason. So, no, great choice. Uh, I like, you know, of course, I've done this myself where you make a pick that's kind of more of the, uh, the homage to the artists uh, but but yet will be a collection that you'll you'll continue to listen to I'll have a couple of individual doors albums uh, on my list including well that's good you've, you've outdone me on this but to be clear uh-huh. I'm not just picking this because it's I want to pay homage to the band I listened to this collection quite a lot it was one of my first CDs I bought it was a double CD yeah I remember and I listened to it quite often because I did not own and I still have never really listened to their album collection so it is an album that I have listened to and I wanted to, to you know speaking to the whole idea of greatest hits albums too I wanted to quote critic Bruce Edgar who gave this 4.5 out of 5 stars and he said it's the most comprehensive to date back in 1985 and he said, good as it is, the compilation misleads somewhat by removing the material from its original context and also shuffling the order so that songs off of the soft parade bump up against tracks from L.A. Woman. The hits can stand on their own, but overall the music lacks the broader impact that it was intended to have when heard juxtaposed with the other tracks on their respective original albums. So <laughs> he, had to he, come up with much, he pretty much summed up my issue with greatest hits albums altogether. <laughs> even, yeah, though what, even though I'm including several on my list. So you're saying the chronological presentation is really the best because you, the, you, the, the artwork of the album is yeah. important, I think, for a show in which we're picking the pick 100. But I do feel that a lot, a lot of people only know some bands by their greatest hits compilations. And those entities can become, you know, hit albums in themselves and like he like he said even though he said that which I think is something you can say about any greatest hits collection he did give it 4.5 out of 5 stars yeah <laughs> so. for those who may may have trouble finding it among the, the the absolute pile of collections I believe you're referring to the one that has the iconic Morrison picture of him shirtless on the cover and maybe the arms out extended not really correct because oh. you said the one there are several versions that have that shot oh okay <laughs> So, well, at so, the time, at the time, 1985, that yeah. was the artwork, right? Yes, okay. that was the first time this artwork appeared. But even the very okay. best of the Doors album has the same fucking shot. <laughs> Maybe just a little bit to the left or something. So, so it, it's a little yeah. bit annoying. But um, I, you know, the Pick website is here to help, giving you the original 18 songs from this seminal greatest hits collection well they were a band that confounded and frustrated many so maybe it's only appropriate that 50 <laughs> years later they're still doing it with this madness of compilation yes well it's a good thing this show's over now because i am exhausted after that rant <laughs> and when the show's over we turn out the lights did you get that doors reference 
<laughs> no, oh no. yeah, when the show's over. <laughs> Sorry, music's yeah, over, music's yes. over. Yeah, I was trying. I was rapidly trying to figure out. Okay, he's doing something with lyrics there, but I can't quite place it. Yes, well done, well done. So the next episode, Kevin, we're going to get to uh, number fifty or fifty-one. We'll be halfway done. And I think we're going to maybe, you know, we, we sort of marveled at the randomness of us actually picking the same album at number 62. I think the odds go up on that as we get higher. You know, that there's likely to be yes. one, maybe two more times where we land on the same album on the same slot. Yeah, well, we both had uh, we both had Fleetwood Mac albums in this episode. We both had REM albums in this episode. Yeah. But also, each week we get closer, the albums get better and more exciting to talk about. So we'll be back with that episode soon. Until then, don't forget to call the pick line for the pick 3-4. That's 484-374-2534. We're getting a lot of calls, Kevin, but we could still use some more. Yep, don't be shy. You've got some holiday time here coming up, so give us a ring. Also, our website, thepickcast.com, and the page for the pick 100 is thepickcast.com slash 100. Check us out and see all of the albums we've listed, plus additional features. Also, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. At the Pickcast is the address for all of those. Music for the Pick by Audionautics.com. For the Pick in Portland, I'm Jeff Payne. I'm Kevin Toon. So long, everybody. But many of the tracks on this record are mellow and melancholic. <laughs> Why do I write this shit for myself? <laughs> but many of the tracks are many of the tracks on this record are both mellow. But I love that quote. But many of the, <laughs> but many of the tracks on this record. Why do I write this shit for myself? I love it.